Please turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 11. The passage we're assigned today is Hebrews chapter 11, verses 32 through 38. Before we get there, I'd like to rethread the context from chapter 10, beginning in verse 32. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 32. We'll read through 11.2, and then we'll skip ahead to our verses in chapter 11.32. But recall the former days when, after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet in a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith preserve the souls. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. Let's jump ahead to 1132. And what more shall I say? For time will fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, and put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release, so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging, and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains, in dens and in caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect. Let's pray together. Oh, dear Lord, we're grateful to be here today and celebrating the season of your incarnation, the sending of your Son, and we're the grateful recipients of such happy news and such joyful gospel message that has come to us. We remember the angelic pronouncement to the shepherds and their joy and how they ran to see the Savior, and we pray that that would be our heart today. We would run and long to see the Savior in in this scripture, even a difficult passage. We pray that you would enable us to see Jesus this day. We pray in his name. Amen. Okay. Hebrews eleven thirty two. The title of the sermon is Faith in Victory, Faith in Defeat. And I want to clarify the terminology just a little bit here because the author of Hebrews is making a contrast in this passage. 
And what we're going to see is a, a sharp pivot, the middle of verse 35, where he shifts from faith in victory to faith in defeat. But he doesn't mean by defeat moral failure. That's not what he's contrasting here. He's contrasting how faith is used by God to bring about great victories, and faith is used by God to help his people endure great defeats. It's a very interesting contrast, and the author is using this to remind us of this summary of how God is working through faith as we approach the end of the chapter. So let's look again at verse 32 as we review this faith in victory. It starts out by saying, What more shall I say? For time will fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets. So this language, time would fail me, is the language of an intentional summary. He's letting us know here, this is, I've got to sum this up, guys. I can't write enough books if I had to review all of these people. So this is definitely a, an interpretive clue that this is a summary, and we should deal with this passage in that way, the same way the author does. So he tells of all these great prophets and priests and kings and patriarchs who through faith conquered kingdoms. They experienced supernaturally empowered victories and a fearlessness in the face of their enemies. We remember all of the battles that David engaged in, conquering kingdoms. And David even has a whole list of his own mighty men that aren't listed here in Hebrews 11. You can read about in Second Samuel. They conquered kingdoms. They enforced justice. We heard a little bit about this in that message about Samson, how he enforced justice against Israel's enemies, the Philistines. He was an enforcer by faith, bringing about God's justice. These folks obtained promises. Remember Abraham and the Abrahamic covenant and the great promises that God has made that he always, always keeps. It's by faith that they received these promises. They stopped the mouths of lions. Of course, the names are not mentioned here, but we think of, well, Daniel stopped the mouths of lions, okay? And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego quenched the power of fire. You remember their story. All by faith, they escaped the edge of the sword. They were made strong out of weakness. Remember how the Lord says, my strength is made perfect in weakness. Do we qualify then as people who can experience the strength of the Lord? Do you have the weakness part of the qualification? And even women received back their dead by resurrection. In the Old Testament, you remember in First Kings and Second Kings, Elijah and Elisha, raising the dead as prototypes of the great one who would resurrect the dead to come. It was by faith these women received back their dead from resurrection. And as we move on, I want to see how the author is doing us a great service here when he stops at the end of this, women received back their dead by resurrection. That really should kind of be the end of the verse or the beginning of a new verse because the topic radically pivots 180 degrees at this point in the middle of verse 35. He starts now to talk about something very different than victory. He says, some were tortured, refusing to accept release. What does that mean, refusing to accept release? They're being tortured in a way where they're being tempted to renounce their faith. They're being told, you need to worship our gods. And they're being tortured for it. And we know the unspeakable inhumanities against man and the nature of torture, the cruelty of it. We don't have to go into the detail about that, but you can imagine how cruel some of these tortures might have been. These people are being told, if you don't renounce your faith in the true God and worship our God, we will torture you to death. They refused to accept release from their torture. 
They refused to yield to the threats, to the temptations. Instead, it says, they refused to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Though you kill me, my God will raise me. It was that kind of faith that enabled them to endure this kind of torture. Torture unto death. And sometimes torture is a fate worse than death. But they endured it all the way to death. They believed that God, though in his providence, may allow them to be slain, that they would still trust him. You remember Job, how he suffered the loss of everything. And what was his statement? Though he slay me, yet I will trust him. Though he slay me, I will still trust him. That's the mentality of these who refuse to accept release from torture. That's the mentality of faith, to trust in God in the face of death. Others, it says, suffered mocking and flogging, even chains and imprisonment. It sounds, too, like some of the things that they suffered in the New Testament. And they were stoned. They were sawn in two. That is a horrific thought. None of us expect to be sawn in half, but you never know, do you? You don't know what a day will bring forth. And only God knows what plans he has for your life, what things he might bring you to. Some of us might become missionaries in a hostile land. We might send our kids off to Muslim countries. Maybe God will get a hold of one of your kids and he'll say, I feel a burden for East Asia, or I feel a burden for a Hindu nation. Will you let your kids go if they say God is calling me? We ourselves might end up being in dangerous circumstances right here where we live. If you act like a missionary here, you might start to experience some persecution yourself. Will you be spiritually ready for that? I mean, have you ever been caught unprepared for a spiritual battle? Our culture that we're living in right now is rupturing into polarized factions as the world around us is ripening for judgment prior to the Lord's return. Make no mistake about it. The world is coming apart at the seams right now, and we've only seen the beginning of it. And we need to be people of prayer if we're going to be ready for whatever the Lord has for us. These folks that are exemplars for us today, they went about in skins of sheep and goats, and in in the case of John the Baptist, maybe a camel skin. They weren't seeking material comfort. They were seeking to glorify God. They were destitute. They were afflicted. They suffered mistreatment. And it says of them that the world was not worthy of them, the humble ones. God's heart is tuned to the humble. He searches the earth for a heart that is humble. Remember what it said of Moses? He was the humblest man on earth. And God used him in mighty, mighty ways. You could break Moses' life in, he lived 120 years, you could break his life into three sections. The first 40 years, Moses spent thinking he was somebody, growing up in a, in a palace. The next 40 years, he's off in the wilderness, exiled, realizing that he's a nobody. In the final 40 years of his life, Moses finds out what God can do with somebody who realizes they're a nobody. These people went about destitute, living in caves of the earth, in a crevice of a rock, sleeping in there, knowing that there was a better city for them. And we could add to this list, burned alive. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they might have well been in the second part of this topic instead of the first. You know, they they quenched the power of fire up there in, in, in the faith is the victory section. 
But if it hadn't been for God's intervention, they'd be listed in this second section, the faith and defeat section. They went into the flames and they said, you remember in Daniel uh, 3 when they were going to be thrown into the fire, Nebuchadnezzar in a fit of rage says to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, is it true that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I've set up? If you do not worship, you will be immediately cast into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. And what God is there who can deliver you out of my hands? I am going to burn you alive if you don't repent of your God and come to my false God. And guess what? They were ready to go to their death. They had the heart of a martyr. They were almost martyrs, but with the heart of a martyr. What do they say to to Nebuchadnezzar? They say, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from, from your furnace of blazing fire. But even if he does not deliver us, let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you've set up. We're going to worship our God alone. Even if he doesn't deliver us, though he slay us, still we will trust him. And guess what happened? They did not burn up, though they were willing. They had the heart of a martyr, and yet they were spared. Who are these people of whom the world is not worthy? Who are these people that are willing to give their lives for the faith? They're not playing games. They're not posers. They're not pretenders. They're not professing Christians. They are real believers. This section of the text is painting a picture of faith. But is it painting a picture of faith as the victory that overcomes the world? At first glance, it might not seem so. It might not look like victory. But the author of Hebrews is reminding us that it's not just faith in victory. It's faith also in defeat. Even if our faith leads us to death, God will be with us. Scripture tells us that precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his godly ones. He's with us all the way. Contentment in defeat, even unto death, is a hallmark of faith, of true faith. Trusting in God all the way to the end. These martyrs had their senses trained to discern truth from lies. They knew the truth was more valuable than human life. Does that sound strange? Human life is temporal. You're from the dust, and to the dust you'll return. You're like a vapor. Truth is eternal. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will never pass away, says the Lord. They knew how to discern the truth about that. God's truth is worth more than my life. Do you believe that? These martyrs knew long before Jim Elliot ever said it, that a man is no fool who gives a life that he cannot keep to gain a life that he cannot lose. They knew that. Like Jesus says 2,000 years before that, for whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and yet forfeits his soul? If the author of Hebrews were updating the writing of this chapter today, about faith and defeat, this section, he no doubt have to note this arc of the martyr storyline goes all the way through the Old Testament. It carries on all the way through the New Testament. And even after Acts 28, it keeps on in church history. This arc of the martyr storyline. 
It goes on for centuries and centuries throughout church history, even severely intensifying today. Not sure you're aware of this, but the 20th century had more Christian martyrs than at any time in human history. The 21st century, which we've now entered, is on track to beat that. More Christian martyrs in the world than ever, than at any point in history. You don't hear about that on the lamestream media. People are being killed every single day in large numbers, massacred. Genocidal massacres are occurring in at least five African nations right now. There are even extremist Hindus killing Christians. Muslims, when they kill you, they think they're doing their God a favor. This is the world we live in. This arc of the martyr storyline carries on. Jesus alludes to this storyline of the martyrs when he prophesies against his enemies in Matthew 23. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous. And you say, If we'd been living in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partners with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. So you testify against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of the guilt of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How will you escape the sentence of hell? Those who persecute the Lord's children will not escape the sentence of hell. They bring it on themselves. He says, therefore, behold, I'm sending you prophets and wise men and scribes. And what are you going to do? Some of them you will kill and crucify, just like your fathers did, is what he's implying. And some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city, so that upon you may fall the guilt of all the righteous blood shed on the earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Jesus is saying that all the righteous blood shed on earth from the righteous blood of Abel on down has its own storyline. God knows it. This storyline begins all the way back with, with righteous Abel. He's killed by his own brother. The first child born of natural childbirth on this planet was a homicidal, fratricidal killer of his own brother. If you wonder if you come from a sinful race... You might consider that. The very first natural-born human being was a homicidal maniac who killed his brother. And on to others, Zechariah, he's killed in the temple of God. There's nothing sacred to those who hate God. Remember, as we go into the New Testament, in Acts 6 and 7, when the deacon Stephen gives that glorious speech recounting all of the Old Testament history, he's stoned to death for preaching the Bible. He's stoned to death. And we call him the first Christian martyr. But I think, too, we should remember John the Baptist, who was beheaded for just calling out a man for his gross immorality and saying, hey, it's not right that you should marry your brother's wife. And she wants him dead. In a very real sense, though, John was that transitional prophet, the last of the great Old Testament prophets. He was also the first prototype of the New Testament preacher. So in a very real sense, I guess we could call him the first Christian martyr. And he wouldn't be the last. The martyrs that came before Christ are previewing the martyrdom that Christ himself would experience. The martyrs that come after Christ are echoes of what Christ has already done. If you wonder about these things, you know, how did all the apostles die? I've got sheets and sheets here. 
overview of how the apostles died, how the apostles suffered. There's so much data. Time would fail us if we tried to include it in the sermon today. Just an overview, you know, James was beheaded to please the people. Peter was said to be crucified upside down. He was too ashamed to be killed the way the Lord was killed. And he begged, please hang me upside down. Paul was beheaded. And along the way to their martyrdom, they suffered great persecution. I have an overview of Paul's suffering and death here. It's four pages of scripture verses. Time would fail us if we tried to read this. I'll summarize just a few from 2 Corinthians. Paul says, In far more labors, in far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews the 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A day and a night I've spent in the deep. I've been on frequent journeys. In dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, and dangers amongst false brethren. I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. Apart from such external things, There's the daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. This is just a summary of the four-page summary that I have. And this is the guy who calls this light momentary affliction. That's the guy who says, I consider the sufferings of the present day not worthy to be compared with the glory that's going to be revealed to us. That's coming from him. Only God can turn these great evils into great goods. And only God can turn our own great defeats into his greater glory. You remember Jesus' prophecy in Revelation 2. He's talking to the, amongst the letter of the seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3. He says to the church at Smyrna, Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you will be tested and you will have tribulation for ten days. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. That's a repeated refrain to all those churches. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. It wasn't many decades after this prophecy that Christ gives through the Apostle John in the letter of Revelation to this church in Smyrna. Not many decades later, their beloved pastor, Polycarp, would be martyred. He was a man who was a direct disciple of John the Apostle. And he's about 100 years old with such a notorious Christian testimony that he caught the attention of his enemies. And it was decided that he would be put to death. And men came to his house to arrest him, to bring him to the stadium. And he begged them, I'll feed you if you just let me pray. And he, and he made them a meal so that they would eat and leave him alone. And he went in and he prayed. And he prayed out loud. And they didn't want to take him to his death. They thought, why should we kill such an old man who's just praying to his God? But they brought him to the stadium and they put him to the test. Renounce your faith in Christ. He said, these 86 years I've served him. He's never done me wrong. He's always been faithful to me. How can I now be unfaithful to him? And so they took him and they were going to put him on the pyre and they were going to burn him. And he said, you don't have to fasten me to the stake. I'll stay. And they lit the flames and he stayed. 
Witnesses reported a strange wind blowing the flames away from his body. And they got so mad, they took a spear and they stabbed him to death. Though he slay me, still I will trust him. Again, time would fail us if we tried to cover martyrs like John Huss, John Wycliffe. How about Martin Luther? He's another almost martyr. You know, when he went, they gave him 24 hours to recant, and, and they, they confronted him about his writings and his teaching the Bible, and they said, you must recant. You are a heretic, and you're going to be put to death as a heretic. Go home, sleep on it, come back. We'll give you 24 hours. And guess what? That couldn't have been an easy 24 hours. But he came back, and he said, Scripture and conscience, here I stand. I can do no other. And guess what? He expected to be killed. He was fully right to expect it. The fact that he wasn't killed was God's providence. But he had the heart of a martyr. An almost martyr is as good as a martyr. Are you an almost martyr? This pattern of persecution and suffering and even martyrdom is continuing on today, like I mentioned. And this arc of the martyr storyline even reaches into heaven where we hear the martyrs crying out for God's justice in Revelation 6. When the Lamb broke the fifth seal, the Apostle John saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. And they cried out with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? They're saying, how long, O Lord, before we get to see your justice? And there was given to each of them a white robe. And they were told that they should rest for a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who were to be killed, even as they had been, would be completed also. Listen to that again. They're told to rest a while until the number of their fellow servants and brethren who were also to be killed as they had been would be completed. We can see there's actually a fixed number of martyrs in God's sovereign plan. He knows each of them by name and by number. They have a special place reserved in heaven, and they're given the unique privilege of glorifying God by giving up their lives. But if you think about it, we're actually reading a very small sliver of church history. A small part of the total story has been recorded for us. Some in scripture, some in church history, but many, many that only God knows. Do you suppose we're going to hear about these who gave their life for the faith in heaven? Suppose they'll have stories to tell. and We'll be interested to know what they have to say about how God delivered them. Do you suppose any of these martyrs planned to go out and they made a life plan and they, and they thought, oh, I'm going to go out and I'm going to get killed. I doubt they wrote that down on their bucket list. But they had their senses trained to discern good from evil by taking in scriptural truth. And they walked by faith in such a way that when they were confronted with the unexpected challenge of giving up their life for the Lord, their faith was up to the ultimate test. Are you ready for spiritual battles? Train your senses to discern good and evil from the Bible. And know that God's truth is worth more than your life. When dying, these martyrs refused to believe the lie that God had somehow stopped caring for them or stopped loving them. They rejected the notion that their circumstances meant that God was somehow failing to remain faithful. They rejected that. 
Instead, even in the face of fear and certain death, their faith reassured them more than ever that God was remaining faithful, that his promise of resurrection was more to be trusted than life itself. His word was the sure anchor of their souls in the midst of their most fearful storms. And it's hard to trust the Lord when you're experiencing failure or defeat in life. You can lose heart in those times. You can be tempted to question whether or not God is really watching over you. Is God really watching over little old me? I know he watched over those saints in the Bible. But is he really watching over me? Little insignificant me. Is God really caring for me? Is he really there at all when these things are happening? The doubts that these kinds of temptations bring can cause you to ask, is God really sovereign over the circumstances of my life? When God says he'll never leave me or forsake me, is that really true? Has God really said? Can you hear the echoes of the tempting serpent from Genesis 3 and that unbelieving question, has God really said? That's an echo of that doubt that seed of doubt that sowed from the tempter. It's more than ever in times of distress and temptation that we need to ask God for the strength to grow in our faith and trust the veracity of his word. In Hebrews 13, he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you, so that we may confidently say, if the Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? If God is on my side... Why should I fear any puny man? If you were to turn to Matthew chapter 21, Matthew chapter 21. Now we've seen a summary of faith in victory, a summary of faith in defeat. And I want to consider finally in our third point, the faith of Jesus. And you might ask, how is this suddenly turning about the faith in Jesus? I don't see Jesus' name mentioned in this passage, in Hebrews 11. Why is it the preacher is always trying to turn everything around to Jesus? Because it is about Jesus, and let me let him speak to that question. In Matthew 21, if you look in verse 33 to 40, Jesus tells a parable. Matthew 21, 33, he says, There was a landowner who planted a vineyard and put a wall around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower. And he rented out his vineyard to vine growers and went on a journey. When the harvest time approached, he sent his slaves to the vine growers to receive his produce. The vine growers took his slaves and they beat one. And they killed another and they stoned a third. Again, the landowner sent another group of slaves even larger than the first. And they did the same thing to them. But afterward, the landowner sent his son to them saying, Surely they'll respect my son. But when the vine growers saw the son, they said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and we can seize his inheritance. They took him and threw him out of the vineyard, and they killed him. Who do you think they're talking about in this parable? All those who came before Jesus were prototypical previews of what was to come. This passage in Hebrews 11 is talking about examples of the Christ to come. This parable sums it up perfectly. And he ends the parable by saying, Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes and sees all that these killers have done, what will he do to those vine growers? 
God will bring justice, and he'll bring it in his proper time, and it will be perfect. This has always been about Jesus. From cover to cover, the Bible in your hand has always been about Jesus. So we're talking about the faith of Jesus. How does the faith of those who experienced great victories and the faith of those who endured great defeats teach us about the faith of Jesus? You say, wait a minute. Why does Jesus need faith? I thought he was the Son of God, and why would he need faith? Well, don't forget, he's also the Son of Man. And as a man, the fullness of his humanity is uninterrupted by the fullness of his deity. It's not eclipsed. His deity doesn't interfere with the natural human development. We see Jesus as a baby. We see Jesus as a boy in the temple. He grew in wisdom and knowledge in favor of the Lord. Like any normal man, he was called upon to trust in God. He was called upon to be filled with the Spirit. And he cried out to God in prayer and dependence all the time. Yes, Jesus had to have faith in his humanity. And he was the man of faith, the quintessential man of the spirit, the prototypical man, the head of a new humanity to come. He is what humanity should be defined as. And yes, he trusted in the Lord. So as we consider the faith of Jesus, we think about the fates that are worse than death, torture being one of them. Watching a loved one being tortured is another one. Fates worse than death. Unspeakable inhumanities of man against man, men who invent new ways of killing each other, invent new weapons to commit atrocities in war, contrive new cruelties in torture. And nowhere is that more clearly seen than in the method of execution we know of as crucifixion. The cruelty, the simplicity of it, is totally eclipsed by the cruelty of it. When someone is impaled on a cross, their body weight hangs by the nails, and the weight pulls down in such a way that they cannot breathe. It pinches in on the nerves and the muscles around the lungs so that if you want to breathe, you have to pull up against the nails. You have to push up with your feet and pull up with your hands to get a breath, every single breath. You have to pull on the wounds and pull on the wounds over and over. It's horrifying in its cruelty. It's designed to inflict maximum pain and suffering and torture. Devised by this fiendishly evil mind of someone that's cruel enough to devise it. Our Lord's death, though, is only in some ways like the martyrs who came before him. They typified his death. And yes, like those who were martyred before, Jesus was despised. He was rejected of men simply for telling the truth about God. They hated him. He was hated, persecuted, plotted against, hunted down, tortured, and executed in the worst way imaginable because he told the truth about God. What a crime. Do you think those martyrs before him might have been filled with fear when they faced torture and execution? This is why we talk about faith producing courage. There's no courage in ourselves. I can face this. It's courage in God. That's what faith produces, real courage, where courage ought to be focused. But do you think that they were fearful? That's what courage is. It's not the absence of fear, right? It's, it's trusting God in the face of fear. And do you suppose that Jesus, like those martyrs before, was afraid when he faced his own execution? 
Do you think the Lord might have been afraid in the Garden of Gethsemane when he knew that he was facing crucifixion as the method of his execution? It's a tough question. But we see him in the Garden of Gethsemane and he prays, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. If you are willing, please remove this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. We know his soul was deeply grieved. He was very distressed and troubled to the point of death. And being in agony, he was praying very fervently. And his sweat became like drops of blood, so thick, falling down upon the ground. He was just sweating thick beads of sweat so profusely because he was in in agony. The dilemma of what he was facing put him in agony. The dilemma of facing God's justice, coupled with his normal, sane human survival instinct and his desire to live. He was not insane. He didn't desire suicide. He didn't desire death. He loved life. If anyone's mind was sane and healthy and balanced, it was his. A sane man doesn't desire to die. This dilemma is tearing him apart. The thought of bearing the cup of God's wrath, the putrefaction of the sin that might be laid upon him, and his own holiness and his own distaste for sin, all these things are tearing him into pieces. He's in agony to the point of death, even before his execution. But does the scripture say, in so many words, that Jesus was afraid? Does it use those words? I mean, people resist even the suggestion that Jesus might have been afraid because, you know, after all, he's the son of God. How dare you say that he could be afraid? I understand that sentiment. He was also the son of man. He possessed all the mental faculties that a sane man would, and he did not desire to die. Jesus' distress was based on something far deeper than his method of execution. What distressed him in the Garden of Eden was not really the fear of how he was going to die. It was what I mentioned before. He knew well in advance that he was going to be made sin for us. He was to bear in his own person the full weight of God's righteous justice. He would have to drink the full cup of God's wrath that we all deserve. That's what created the agony not the method of execution. Martin Luther expresses his understanding of Gethsemane very plainly. He says, No man ever feared death the way that Jesus did, because no man was ever to die the death that Jesus was to die. It's an astute observation. Jesus' fear in the garden was not the illegitimate fear of man, but the legitimate fear of Almighty God. Jesus himself said, Do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Fear him, I tell you. So in the final analysis, our Lord's death was not like the martyrs who only typified his death. It was different. Only once in the entire history of humanity will there ever be a perfectly sinless man who could offer his life as a vicarious, substitutionary sacrifice 
to satisfy the righteous requirements of God's holy justice. It's a long sentence. I want to say it again. Only once in the entire history of humanity would there ever be a perfectly sinless man who could offer his life as a vicarious, substitutionary sacrifice to satisfy the righteous requirements of God's holy justice. Only once could that happen. No other martyr could do that. Only once in the entire history of humanity could there be one so qualified to mediate between God and man. He alone possesses the true nature of man and the true nature of God. It's only him that can bridge this immeasurable gulf between God and man. If you picture, is it Michelangelo who painted that portrait on the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel there that depicts the creation of Adam, where God is depicted as a white-haired man reaching down with his finger and touching the spark of life into Adam? That relationship is prior to the fall of man in sin, right? That's in the innocence in the garden, God creating Adam, that depiction. What would we see now? We would see an immeasurable gulf, no touching. How did the two parties ever become reconciled? How can they be brought together? The intermediary mediation of Jesus Christ who can reach down with the hand of man and reach up with the hand of God, he alone can bridge that gap. He alone is qualified to mediate between God and man. There is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Not some priest in a fancy robe. One mediator between God and man, Jesus Christ, the man Jesus Christ. He alone can represent the cause of humanity as the perfect son of man, while simultaneously representing the demands of the holiness of God as the perfect son of God. And no one else could ever satisfy the holy justice of God. His perfect life met every ounce of obedience, every requirement of faithfulness to God. He lived that righteous life that we were supposed to live in our place. So not only does he substitute for us in the death we deserve, he substitutes for us in the life we should have lived. That's what makes his sacrifice acceptable to God. That's why the word propitiation is in the Bible. He satisfies the justice of God. No one else but Jesus could ever have died the death he died. No one could bear the full weight of the righteous wrath of Almighty God against sin except the Son of God himself. So yes, no man ever feared death the way that Jesus did because no man was ever to die the death Jesus was to die. He feared God. And on that cross, when Jesus experienced the thing he feared the most, that separation from God the Father, whom he had always known, he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was slain for our sins, and yet he cried out once more, Into thy hands I commit my spirit. That, my friends, is the ultimate expression of though he slay me, Yet I will trust him. Into thy hands I commit my spirit. In his own body on that tree, he put to death, death itself. And we are the recipients and beneficiaries of his resurrection power. Because of his resurrection, it's his eternal life that gives us life and sustains our life. Our future with him is one of shared glory while he grants to us the privilege 
of experiencing his own glory, of sharing the glory that he and the Father have always shared. But until then, we are to occupy. Jesus reminds us to remain faithful in the face of persecution, whatever form it takes. He says, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. These things I've spoken to you that you may be kept from stumbling. Do you believe the words of Jesus? Do you trust the words of Jesus so that when you're faced with the spiritual battle, you will be kept from stumbling? Believe what he says. They will make you outcasts. An hour is coming when everyone who kills you will think that he's offering a service to God. That's happening all around us. People killing people in the name of their religion, thinking they're doing their God a favor. Now, our lot in this life may well end up in serious persecution, but our future with Christ will be free from persecution. We'll live with him in complete peace alongside all those who are martyred for his name's sake. In closing, I'd like to consider what is required of those of us who are the called according to his purpose. What's required of those of us who have faith is that we remain faithful to the end, that we not shrink back to destruction. We have faith to the preserving of our souls, and trusting God in every circumstances with the strength that he provides is how our faith grows. Faith comes by hearing, hearing the word of God. Faith grows by hearing the word of God. Most of us would like to hope that if the situation ever arose, we'd be ready and willing to die for the Lord if it came to it. In fact, many Christians are quick to say, like Peter did, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Have you ever heard people say, I'll die for Jesus? Christian, if you are willing to give your life for your Lord, are you willing to live your life for your Lord? Sometimes that's even harder. You say you'll give your life for Jesus. Will you live your life for Jesus? Living for Christ requires true faith. And dying in faith can only follow living in faith. Nobody who does not live by faith will die in faith. You have to live in faith to die in faith. Are you living in faith so much so that your life becomes a threat to the enemies of Christ? Are you living in faith enough so that you might actually become a target of the enemy? Why would the enemy want to kill you if you're no threat to him to begin with? He's worried about the F-35s and the F-16s and the F-18s. He's not worried about the little Cessna down there that's parked in some hangar that never gets out and does anything. Are you the little Cessna that doesn't threaten him at all? Or are you asking God to make you into a secret weapon for Christ? Someone who will be bold to stand up and speak for Christ, even when it costs you relationships. Pray for that boldness. Pray that God will use your faith to build a courage in you, that you trust him in such a way that you live so that the enemy of Christ would actually want you dead. If the enemy hated your Lord, he should hate you too. Few of us have the kind of faith that lives for the Lord in that way, in the way that we would be granted the privilege of dying for our Lord. But we ought to be praying toward that. Obviously, not every Christian will be called upon to give their lives for the Lord in martyrdom. 
In fact, most of us won't. But we are called to be faithful to the end in whatever lesser situation we're called. If God is not calling you to give your life for him, he's calling you to some lesser thing, won't you give him that lesser thing? You owe him your life. Can you not give him your love? Your obedience? Can you not develop an appetite for his truth? There are many unique opportunities in this life to glorify God before we come to our mortal ends. After all, in heaven, we're going to miss out on some serious opportunities. There's no illness, there's no pain, there's no suffering or weakness, there's no exhaustion. You're not going to have a chance to serve God when you're exhausted and sleep-deprived. You're not going to have a chance to serve God when you're sick. Those chances are here. (laughs) They're unique opportunities to glorify God. You know, where there's taunting and tempting and mocking and ridicule, when you experience betrayals. And you go through church splits and you experience a hundred little mini-divorces and your world falls apart because you stood for the truth. Those opportunities evaporate when you go to heaven. Those are chances to glorify God in a unique way in the here and now. Be faithful to Him in all circumstances, regardless of how difficult they are. How will God call you in your sphere of life to endure the conditions of this temporal realm in order to uniquely glorify Him while you still live in the here and now. Don't miss out on these unique opportunities. They're passing us by. Will you in your own strength crumble under the weight of life's difficult circumstances? Or will you by faith recognize these conditions as unique opportunities to glorify God? And by faith realize you can do all things and you can endure all things through Christ who strengthens you. Trusting in Him. Christian, will tribulation or distress or persecution separate you from the love of Christ? If you go through all these hard things, tribulation and distress and persecution, will any of that separate you from the love of Christ? Will cancer separate you from the love of Christ? How about Alzheimer's? If you lose your marbles, will that separate you from the love of Christ? How about all your failures and defeats and all your regrets? Will any of that stuff separate you from the love of Christ? Will being sawn in two separate you from the love of Christ? No, no. Even if you're sawn in two, you'll not be separated from Christ. Your soul will indeed be separated from your body at one point. But if you're in Christ, your soul will never be separated from Him. This is the faith that gives us confidence to face death. If death itself can't separate you from Christ, certainly no lesser circumstance can separate you from Christ. Be faithful to Him and to the end. As it says in James, Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial. For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we're grateful today that even in this Christmas season we can look at a passage as shocking as this one, and remember what you've done for us and ask that you embolden us to give you our all. Pray that you'd help us to be faithful to the end for your glory, which is our good. In Jesus' name, amen.